Welcome to Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. Today, I'm joined by Jessica Davidson, professor at James Madison University. We're going to be discussing children, masculinity, and memory in a couple of recent films that take place in Spain. So Jessica, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So today we're going to be focusing on two films, Devil's Backbone or El Spinazo del Diablo by Guillermo del Toro and Bad Education or Mala Educación by Pedro Almodóvar. And both of these deal with children and masculinity during the Spanish Civil War and the Franco dictatorship. So to start out, I was wondering if you could just give us a brief plot summary um, for these two films in case some of our listeners might not have seen them. Okay, Almodovar is famously um, <clears throat> complicated in his plots, but I mean, I, I guess for the purpose of my research, I chose them because they're both about children. They both take place around the same time. Uh, Madagascar is, I think, nineteen. Actually, it's a little bit later, fifties, sixties, um, and then Devil's Backbone is, I think, like the end of the war, so late thirties. So, in La Malagacion, it takes place in a Catholic boarding school, a male Catholic boarding school, and is essentially the story of a friendship of two boys who meet when they're young, and the film traces their separate journeys, and then they meet again um, in their twenties or thirties. But there's lots of uh, plot twists and surprises, Almodovar style. Uh, but what I what I liked about the film, or why it interests me, is because of the interplay between the boys, in part because of their sexuality, they both grow up gay, um, and because of the the interesting character of um, Padre Manolo, who is the Catholic head of the boarding school, who ends up also being bisexual and acts as a predator, and uh, particularly uh, towards one of the young boys. It's a rough story. I mean, it's it has some interesting um, interesting parts, funny parts even. But it's it's heavy, um, mm -hmm. and it follows through the transition, which I think it's like late seventies, early eighties in Valencia, and it's it's, an, it's such an interesting time period. And I think so few films concentrate on that, you know, especially sexuality, sort of social issues. So that is uh, the the Almodovar film. The Devil's Backbone is a little simpler, I guess. Uh, it is about uh, an orphanage, right? A boys' orphanage. So those parallels there. That's that's in part why I chose them. It's not clear where it takes place. It's it's rural Spain, although that narrows it down during the Civil War. Um, and it is about also young boys and friendships, and looks at their fears, their traumas, both being orphans during the Civil War, and then also being targeted by another predator, not not a um, sexual predator, uh, but this sort of hypermasculine caretaker played by um, Eduardo Noriega, okay. who's fantastic. Um, and uh, it, it's a lot of violence. It's very uh, del Toro in that sense, um, but there's also some interesting imagery of ghosts um, and haunting, which I think is is part of the uh, allure of the film. Yeah, so I think it's fascinating the way both of these movies really focus on children, and we could add other films, too, that have come out of Spain, El Labyrintho del Fauno, The mm -hmm. Pan's Labyrinth, La Lengua de las Mariposas, El Espíritu de la Colmena. So why do you think that so many of these films that have something to do with the Spanish Civil War have children as a focus? Yeah, that's an interesting question. The history of childhood, childhood studies has not really taken off. I know that Ma Maria Carreras is looking at it. But I think, you know, as far as I've read in film studies, children represent innocence. I mean, they represent all sorts of things, including innocence. They represent vulnerability, malleability. They're easily influenced, but yet they don't 
especially in times of civil war, political turmoil, political trauma, they don't tend to have their opinions already formed. Mm-hmm. So they're sort of sponges. And I think that's why children are used. I mean, the question I have been asking is, why is it so often boy children? However, like you said, Pan's Labyrinth features a young girl. Some of Carlos, Carlos Saura's films, La Prima del Angelica, feature young girls, as does Espe de la Comena. Mm-hmm. Um, but recently it's been sort of this focus on boyhood, I guess, boyhood masculinity. And the two films we're focusing on here, you have one takes place, at least part of it, in an orphanage, and another in a boarding school. Mm-hmm. They're these two kind of similar <clears throat> environments. So do you think there's... Um, something special about those sorts of uh, institutions that appeal to the filmmakers as well. Oh, definitely. I mean, actually, even in the first film I described, the Elmodovar film, it's, n- it's not a scary film per se. It's not a horror film. The, the Del Toro one is. I mean, he's famous for having spooky films. But there's a lot of things that are spooky about boarding schools and orphanages, especially at night, especially when they're poorly... Um, administered, you know, especially when these boys are sort of left to their own devices. But I think also, um, and I wrote about this in my in my paper, there it's sort of an interesting case study of sort of a cloistered area for, for children, right? I mean they're they're there not really because they want to be, they have to be. And, you know, in some ways you sort of have this Lord of the Flies type scenario playing out with, with the children as far as hierarchies that are created. And speaking of hierarchy, I mean, that to me is is so draws so many parallels with the Franco regime. This this hierarchy that's based at, either on the Catholic Church, certainly on authority, masculinity, violence, right, threats of violence, mm-hmm. repression, and all of that is is all over both of those movies. And I think that um, in both movies, authority is one of the big themes. And what's interesting is that you have these strong, if kind of corrupted male figures, but then there you point out there's kind of an absence of women yes, for the most yeah. part in both of these films too. Maybe almost paralleling the, the absence of, of girls in these yes, stories yeah. of children. Yeah. So uh, do you think that that is supposed to represent something as well, the, the absence of women in these films and then more of a focus on the boys? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm writing about now actually, uh-huh. sort of the absence of women or um, looking at sort of the few female characters there are, and there are very few. And when there are female characters, I'm thinking of uh, the Maledicación, there aren't any female characters. I mean, there, there's a transgender individual, so I guess we can't be, um, we can't say there's no female characters. But women don't play a strong role, and they're conspicuously absent in both, and I think particularly in The Devil's Backbone. Because, you know, you have a lot of men there in charge, right? There is, what is interesting is the one female character to note there is uh, an older woman who's sort of head of the orphanage in after the death of her husband though you know in the absence of her husband so what does this say i mean this i'm not quite sure because when we look at film i don't is this something that del toro is is working with i think almodovar in a way that bad education is not the norm for him because usually he has really strong female characters or at least a focus on interaction between between women that's totally not there in the, the bad education film. You know, in a way, it could represent sort of the, dis- the disposability of women during the Franco regime or the invisibility of women. Um, mm-hmm. They're there. They're playing very important roles, usually caretaking roles or protective roles. But they are, uh, well, let's put it this way, they always die in the end. <laughs> they do in all yeah. these films. So they're not there or they die in the end. So, yeah, I think that does say something about gender. And I also wanted to ask about mothers in particular because... They especially seem to be absent from these stories, and why do you think that might be? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a noticeable absence uh, of women in general, but mothers in particular. It begs the question, you know, where where are their mothers? You know, why why are they in these orphanages? Are their mothers dead? Are their mothers um, incapable? But I'm looking now at the role of mothers and motherhood and childhood um, relations. Not in these films, because there's not a lot to look at, because the mothers aren't there. I mean, although that does make, a, I think, a statement of its own. But I'm looking at Espiritu de la, de la Colmena, in which you have this very sort of withdrawn, emotionally absent mother. Um, I'm also looking at Pan Negre, which is a Catalan film. I'm going to be talking about that um, in my paper, in which you have a mother who goes above and beyond for her child, but is never recognized for her efforts, ever. Right, and ultimately, at the at the end of that film, um, the young boy, her son, completely rejects her. Right, turns turns his back on her, and I'm finding that trend in a lot of films and fiction, either written during the Franco regime or that depict the Franco regime. Sort of the the heroic sacrifice of mother, but it, you know the the tendency of it never being recognized. You know, this idea that of course she's going to sacrifice. She's a woman. You know, she's maternal. That's what she does. You know, she suffers. <laughs> she's a mm-hmm. martyr. But, you know, in these horrible circumstances, women women figuring it out what to do on their own with their children, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, because in, in the Franco regime, the ideology is not set up to recognize those kind of roles. Not at all. I mean, a lot of the, the families that I'm looking at now are headed by the mother, right? Because the father's either dead or political exile. A lot of these are left-wing families. And that happened often uh, after the Civil War. You know, or you'd have extended families, but you often had widowed, uh, widowed women or women whose husbands were jailed, um, leaving you know the mother really to to serve as everything, including the breadwinner, right? So part of what I'm looking at now are mothers who work full time, working class mothers, and how it's it's uh, it's a hard balance, right, for them to make sure their child doesn't starve, right? Because this is 1940s Spain, um, and you know make make sure their child grows up protected. Okay, great. We'll take a short break here, and when we come back, we'll look a bit more at kind of the other side of the coin and the role of masculinity uh, in these films. Okay, welcome back to the program. So I thought for this um, second portion, we could focus on the idea of masculinity in these films. And to start out, I thought maybe you could just outline for us what was the Francoist idea of masculinity and how did these films go about trying to challenge that? Well, often I think of um, some some recent work that's been done. Ian, Ian Winchester has done some work on masculinity, and so has Nere Eresti, looking at the sort of nationalist manhood, which of course was what was expected during the Franco regime. I mean, it was the nationalist one, right? You weren't going to act like a Republican man. And I guess a way to get to the definition of a, ma- a nationalist man is to talk about the the anti-man, right? The, the Republican who was effeminate, right? Who was maybe a foreigner, who was not a good father, 
um, not a good husband, right? Who was sort of maybe too politically busy to pay attention to his family, right? These are all sort of the antithesis of what it meant to be um, masculine. And of course, he was also not religious, right? The Republican man. So the nationalist version of masculinity was, was everything that that wasn't, right? It was a man who was willing to sacrifice. I mean, think of what Jose Antonio asked of, of men and women, you know, willing to sacrifice, willing to devote his time either as a soldier or, you know, working for the nation, right? The good for the good of the nation, la, la patria, but also having a family, right? I mean, you were very much expected to have a family, unless, of course, you became a priest, which was, right. which was, you know, a route that some men took. So you were hardworking, you were Christian, of course, you were Catholic, you were dutiful, you were strong, right? Physically strong, masculine. Mm -hmm. And in so many ways, um, I think of the character of Jacinto in uh, Espinato del Diablo as sort of the poster child for that, right? He's always uh, shown, you know, flexing his muscles and sweating and working outside, right? Working sort of um, with his with his hands, um, manual labor. This was, you know, well, I'm thinking of national socialism and, and even sort of generic definitions of fascism. This is masculinity, right? This is virile, right? This is what it means to be masculine. But, you know, it, with in the case of Spain, you also have to balance that with being pious and a good Catholic, moral, I suppose, in that sense. And so that could almost be represented in the uh, bad education film by Father oh, Manolo. Absolutely, yeah, right. I guess if Hacinto represents sort of the, the virility, then Father Manolo represents the the piety. Even though both of them are so <laughs> so corrupt and so hurtful. Yeah. Um, but that's I think part of what happens with that type of um, you know, emphasis on on those gender norms is uh, the glorification of violence and repression and the celebration of it. Right. So do you think? These filmmakers, by using these, in a sense, epitomes of the Francoist masculinity as these kind of evil characters, how do they then criticize this um, yeah, okay. Francoist brand of, of masculinity? Well, I think it's perhaps so exaggerated, right, that it's it doesn't you know it doesn't take much to realize that, that this is sort of a caricature of the uberman or you know, I call it hypermasculinity. Not that there weren't men like that, <laughs> yeah, uh, or men who really wanted to be like that, but it highlights problematic issues of being that type of man. Um, you know, it, instead of glorifying strength, you know, it, it shows instead how he abuses his power. Um, he, in the case of Espinado de Diablo, he, he physically abuses women, children. Uh, he's also a clear sort of philanderer. You know, he, he seduces everyone. And then ultimately, he's a murderer, right? I mean, he's mm -hmm. a murderer. Um, and the priest in the other film, although he's not a murderer, he's violent. He's uh, both sexually abusive to the boys and physically abusive. Um, and he's manipulative, or they're both manipulative. So, I mean, I think that there are clear pictures that are, that are being drawn with, with these characters. Yeah, they kind of epitomize how with that hyper-masculinity that it winds up leading to the violence that sort of mm -hmm. parallels the violence of the Franco regime itself. Yes, you know? and that, you know, that makes me think of, you know, Anne Winchester wrote about this sort of militant, martial masculinity, right? The other, the other side of it is, you know, man as soldier, particularly during the war and right after the war, you know, man, you were celebrated for being willing to defend your country at whatever, whatever cost. And, and if I'm not mistaken, both orphanages and boarding schools that so many children were in after mm -hmm. the war were actually quite abusive. They've had a lot of, you know, it's not just fiction. There are yes. a lot of historical examples of that. There are historical examples, although I'm, I'm waiting for, for it to become more scandalous. I'm waiting for the scandal to break. Sadly, I mean, it's, I think it's a very sad story, obviously. But of course there were abuses, you know, not, not just on the part of men, but nuns were also extremely abusive to children. But the series of um, 
comic strips para cuellos. I mean, that's basically poking fun in a way at uh, the treatment. Of course, it's it's uh, the man who who's the artist was actually in an orphanage in Spain. But the way he depicts the abuse and the neglect is sort of almost farcical, sort of like the film. It's like sort of over the top. Like you want to laugh, but you can't because these are children who are being hurt. Right. But the way they're surviving it is so creative and so resilient. Yeah, and, and Almodovar as well was in a, a boarding school in yes. his childhood, right? So yeah. So probably speaks from personal experience. Yeah, I think that's what I, I read, that, that, he, that this film was sort of the most autobiographical. I'm not, I'm not sure that quoting him, but I, th- I think we could say that, yeah. Father Manolo in Bad Education and then Jacinto and Dell's Backbone are the obvious examples, but I was also interested in what you said about Dr. Casares, who is almost kind of the opposite of that, also a male character in, in Devil's Backbone, but representing a very different kind of, of masculinity. So what did you think? Yeah. He, who was he and what do you think he represented? Well, first of all, I see parallels. I mean, if, if Jacinto is like Padre Manolo, Dr. Casares is sort of like the character of Juan right, in uh, Maleducación, this sort of untraditional type of masculinity that questions all of those expectations we just talked about, yet, and suffers because of that, right, but yet sort of comes out winning at the end, in a way, right, because Dr. Casares is, first of all, he's a foreigner, he really is from Argentina, the actor from Argentina, and he plays a foreigner living in Spain, he also plays someone who's left wing, he's a doctor, so he, although he... has lots of superstitious beliefs, it seems he is a man of, of medicine, of science. So in that sense, you know, he, is he a man of faith, right? You know, questions it, and probably not, right? Because part of the, you know, I think the funny thing about that film is they have all of their religious relics hidden <laughs> until their the inspectors come, and yeah. they take all the religious relics out. But he, he also is, this is a really interesting part of it, he's impotent. I mean, physically, This and it's, people talk about, it's common knowledge, it's sort of strange in, in the orphanage. But I think that not that strange that he is impotent. I think that's actually really symbolic, right? Especially when you have this extremely over-the-top sexual Jacinto who is um, completely the opposite, right? He mm-hmm. is the seducer, and he actually Jacinto has seduces the the woman, the older woman who runs the orphanage, uh, who Dr. Casares is is in love with, but can't <laughs> can't be with her. Right? right. So there is like an interesting commentary on the diversity of masculinities. Um, and, you know, at the end, Jacinto kills Dr. Casares. He murders him. So, I mean, in that sense, you could say, yeah, he's defeated. But his ghost, right, the ghost of Dr. Casares comes back in typical Del Toro style to um, to protect the young boys and to, um, to seek revenge against um, Jacinto, who dies in the end. So, I mean, who has the last word, right? Who, which masculinity wins there? Is there sort of this um, multi- multiple ways to be masculine? Um, and same thing in Maledicación, because you have the priest who is just despicable. And at the end, at the end, it's interesting, this sort of an after the action ends in the film, uh, you find out that the, the priest has been killed, right? Hit by a car or yeah. a car accident, but, and by Juan, right? By this, um, the brother of the student who was molested by the priest. So who wins there, right? And Juan, of course, is is gay. Um, he's not, tra- he's transvestite, <laughs> mm-hmm. but not not transgender like his brother. So, right, I mean, that that's not how you're supposed to be masculine, right? But but who's, you know, who's the last man standing, I guess? It's, right. it's not the Francoist type. Yeah, so it maybe is kind of a, even a metaphor for the Franco regime and yeah. how it seemed to have all this success and yes. power, but 
Did it really win? In the absolutely. End, you know? Right. Absolutely. He's questioning sort of the monolithic nature of the dictatorship, which I think people are questioning on lots of levels. There's only so much you can control as far as somebody's performance of gender, right? Or their sexuality as you can't control it. Okay. We'll take another pause here and um, then we'll come back and discuss the, the way that these films deal with the question of memory in, in modern Spain. Welcome back. So for this third section, I want to focus a bit on the way that um, these films address and critique the memory of the Civil War and the Franco regime as well. So to start out, um, I think we can all agree that these characters we've been talking about, Jacinto and, and Father Manolo, are evil. But you also mention that even the protagonists in these films are kind of morally ambiguous. Yeah. So what, what do you mean by that? Well, let me back up a bit because I'm thinking about Jacinto. And Jacinto, although we, he is evil, he's a murderer, like murders children, abuses mm -hmm. children, he is also presented as morally ambiguous, you know, because he was a child in the orphanage, right? He grew up in the orphanage. And so there is this commentary, you know, okay, so he's a bad guy, but who made, what made him that way? You know, why is he a bad guy? Was he once an innocent child? So yeah. even, and I don't see that with the Padre Manolo so much, but with Jacinto, it's, is there a soft side to him? You know, how has how this happened? But yeah, so um, I don't know about morally ambiguous. Did I use that word? I'm not sure I did. But like, as far as if we're looking at violence, right? If we're looking at violence as a, as a solution, that is what is adopted by these children to survive, right? I mean, and if that's, you know, what they've learned from their abusers. And that's not surprising, perhaps. And it does, I guess it doesn't make them morally ambiguous, but it does question their innocence, right? I mean, mm -hmm. because... Especially, I, both films, and I'm thinking Mala de Cathayonia, when the young, when the young boy, Ignacio, is depicted, he's just this sweet young boy. I mean, just he couldn't be more innocent, right? And he grows up to be, after this abuse, a drug addict, right? Um, a criminal, you know, decides uh, to, uh, to change his sex. You know, all these things that, you know, are far from the innocent, the innocent youth. And it's, it's his brother, it's Juan, who is, who's the murderer in the end. But he, you know, you could also say he's a product of the abuse of the Franco regime. And there's no doubt that he's manipulative, right? Right. Um, you know, who's taught him? Who's taught him to be manipulative, right? Um, and in Devil's Backbone, it's interesting. You know, there, there's a scene. And the boys, too, the, the orphans are so, they're children, right? And they play rough, right, like children do. And they create a sort of a hierarchy as children do but you know in the end there's this one scene that i write about when they um attack jacinto as a group and they have made these sort of make makeshift weapons like these sort of primitive spears and they go after him sort of like i, I always think of lord of the flies when i yeah. see that scene i mean it's just this sort of they they become animals right um and so i guess what i'm questioning more is is that what it takes to survive in the franco regime you know is mm -hmm. that what it do you have to be like your abuser um in order to to make it through uh, but ultimately you know the young orphans do survive not all of them right but a, a handful of them survive and 
I mean, you could also talk about and the end of childhood. You know, they've grown up, right? By the time they leave, and they're no longer innocent children. They have blood on their hands, literally. And that's true also in bad education. That they go from innocent boys to uh, manipulative murderers. So do you think that might say something about the way, kind of paralleling the, the history of Spain and the mm-hmm. way in which it tried to transition out of the Franco regime? Right. I mean, there's also, I mean, especially in uh, bad education, because it does actually probably take place during the, the, the years of transition um, to democracy. I think it's very much romanticized and, and glorified, right, those years of transition. And I know that Pamela Radcliffe has written a lot about this. It, you know, it, was it really a model transition? I mean, was it smooth? I don't think so. I mean, and I think in a way, you know, looking at these characters who are suffering both before, during, and after the transition, right, I think that's a little bit more realistic, right? It's not that all of a, all of a sudden life is much better, right? All of a sudden, okay, the priest leaves the priesthood and gets married, right? Um, but that doesn't mean he's no longer evil. <laughs> he's not reformed. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the drug use and the addiction issues also, I think, are, are not far from the truth of, of, of what went on during the, the transition. So, yeah, it's not it's not pretty, right? It's sort of this, this awkward, awkward face, I guess you could call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like this kind of brutalization that took place during the Franco regime that actually carries through yes, to yeah. a certain extent. Yeah, it's a sort of second generation or whatever, third generation of uh, brutality. I don't know if that says something about masculinity in general. I don't know if I don't think so. Um, but I think it says something about the power of the power of the regime for 40 years to, I don't think it successfully makes every man like that, but to emphasize that type of manliness from the time you're a child on, I mean, it does make an impact. And the other thing that I thought was very interesting in the Devil's Backbone film was that there is this bomb that lands in the courtyard, mm-hmm. unexploded, and, and sits there for the rest of the of the film. Yeah. And you describe that as kind of a symbol of the memory of the, of the Civil War yes, as well. Yeah. Um, so how does that work as a symbol, and, and what does that say? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not so subtle, because I mean, uh-huh. that's how the film opens. You know, it opens, it's from the perspective of the bomb, basically, being dropped from a plane and landing, you know, smack right in the middle of this, the courtyard of the orphanage. But not exploding, right? Not that, de- not detonating. And I think at some point in the film, I mean, most people think that it's no longer able to explode, but that's not clear, right? It's clear. It's clear that it presents a danger, right? It's clear that it makes people uncomfortable, except for the kids, right? The kids are comforted by it somehow, you know. I mean, they they sort of they call it a she, and they says it has a heart or she has a heart you know it's almost this like strange comforting presence for them but the adults especially Jacinto are terrified of it right they so I think they sort of feel like it's always watching them yeah monitoring them but yeah as far as sort of the elephant in the room right I mean it absolutely is you know how can you ignore a big huge bomb that's stuck in the middle of your courtyard you can't I mean you can on a daily basis but you you always know it's there and that very much um, I think reflects historical memory in Spain and this desire to um maybe not successfully, um, completely sweep things under the rug, but this um, tendency to, at least from, from some of the government during the transition, to push Spain to do that. You know, we're going we're gonna to move on and think of Paloma Aguilar's work, you know, this idea that we all know the Civil War was horrible, right? Let's not talk about it. <laughs> we all agree it's bad. There's no more to say about it. Let's move on. There's more to say, right? There's a lot more to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's. It, I think that the, it's dangerous not to say more. I think that's sort of what the bomb is. You know, it's, you, can't, you can't ignore me, right? This, this is not simple, right? You need to, you need to confront. 
And, and I think what's interesting is that both of these two films were made in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So do you think there's something special about that particular moment that, that kind of birthed these, these two films yeah. that critique kind of the legacies of the Civil War and the Franco yeah. regime as well? I mean, yeah, the first decade of the, of the 2000s was interesting in Spain for all sorts of reasons when it comes to memory. The Almodovar film was made and came out right around the time of, uh, I guess it was 2004, the Al-Qaeda bombing in Madrid, which was a big political crisis in Spain. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it necessarily has a lot to do with the Civil War. It does have to do with um, perhaps their biggest political crisis since the Civil War, right? The idea that there was a, a bombing and great political shift afterwards in the election. I think that that's interesting timing, right, for him to, uh, for the earth, for that film to come out and have success. And then you have 2007 with the uh, the law of historical memory, you know, very concretely and effectively <laughs> plays out all of these tensions, all of these dramas. You know, how, how are we going to how are we gonna tell the story of our, of our nation? What can we say? What can't we say? Who needs to be compensated? Right? This idea of who are the victims and who aren't the victims that you can see in the films, both films. Do we just punish the aggressor? You know, how much do we compensate the victims? It's, it's complicated. So just to kind of conclude here, do you think that it would be safe to say that these films, as much as they you know, critique uh, the Franco regime, just as much they're critiquing the, the way that we remember those events and uh, what their legacies are? Yeah, I think so. I think I think we can say that. I mean, they are they are clear, especially um, well, both of them, clear critiques of the Franco regime, pieces mm-hmm. of the Franco regime. But yeah, they're also complicating the story. I mean, they're they're adding more details, right? They're adding more dynamics, uh, more sort of a gray area, right? You know, it's, yeah. not, it's not as simple as you think. You know, humans humans are complex, right? It's it's not it's not as simple as perhaps we've studied we've studied it. Right, which I, which I think is a lot in the last twenty years or so. A lot of what historical scholarship has been mm-hmm. revealing too about not only the Franco regime but the, the period of transition as yeah. well. And that's where I want to go now with my study of women and and uh, femininity, because I think there is more than perhaps of masculinity. There's been this attempt to simplify. Right? Women have this one experience; they react in one way. Of course, that's not true. And so I'm looking at that now in films. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program, and Thanks hopefully, for me. Uh, yeah, it's been my pleasure. Our listeners will watch the films if they haven't I hope yet. So. Yes. And maybe we'll have to have you on again sometime yes. and talk more about women in, in okay. film. Alright, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook so that you can be notified of new episodes.